This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a great afternoon. It's uh, certainly beautiful out there, but bitterly, bitterly cold. It's going to warm up a bit, though, come the weekend, I think, or early into next week, uh, Dave, and feel a little more spring-like. March is when we start to see that change, albeit (laughs) the change happens for a very long time, but there you have it. This is uh, Newfoundland and Labrador after all. Well, it's been barely more than a year, but the images and data being collected by the James Webb Space Telescope are continuing to upend long-held understandings of the universe and how it works. The telescope is working in conjunction with the Hubble Space Telescope in scanning the universe and peering into the deep past to gain an understanding of what the universe is made of and how it was formed. Well, most recently, among the new images being analyzed are those of, well, for the... uh, lay viewer like myself uh, would amount to red dots that scientists believe represent some of the earliest galaxies formed. What makes this particular discovery so amazing is that the galaxies, which date back more than 13 billion years, are more fully formed and far larger than what scientists would have expected for their relatively young age. It's been described uh, by one scientist who used the term insane and it's leaving some scientists both fascinated and perplexed by the possibilities. Well, my guest today is none other than Bethany Downer, Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, whoa. Like, whoa. (laughs) Uh, When we spoke uh, shortly after the James Webb, of course, was first launched into space, we were talking a a lot about the possibilities, you know, what you might be seeing and what you hope to see. Well, now we're starting to see some of that. So what are these red dots and what do they represent? You're absolutely right. It's been just about this time last year, we were just turning the telescope on. It made its way to its home um, and and into orbit, and we were just trying to calibrate the instruments, pressing the on button, making sure it unfolded correctly. So to believe that we've come this far in a year's time, that we're in regular science operations, and we're now questioning some of the science that we thought we knew is really exciting. Um, there's a result, the one that you mentioned here, these red dots that are really perplexing astronomers, but they're also exciting, those of us in the science community, because it's telling us that things that we thought we know we might need to revisit, and it's also exciting to be challenged. But I also like to remind people that this means James Webb is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's meant to surprise us, and it's meant to challenge us. So. When we're talking about these little red dots, um, these are what we're seeing in some of Webb's first deep field images. And a deep field image is one where you can see thousands of galaxies in a single picture, which was first made famous by the Hubble Space Telescope. And when you're looking at these thousands of galaxies in a single image, um, it's the astronomers that are studying the light that's coming from these galaxies to better understand them. And when they're looking at some of the deep field images that James Webb took um, back in the summer, They've discovered that most of them are dated to be around 500 to 700 million years after the Big Bang. So it's not these galaxies or these little red dots that we can see that are surprising themselves. 
but it's more so that astronomers expected that the first star clusters would be forming um, just after the Dark Ages, which is roughly 400 million years after the Big Bang. So when we're looking at these young stars, typically they're expecting to be finding blue dots instead of red ones. And this is because when stars age, they develop a more of a red glow. This is because they burn through their fuel and eventually they'll cool down. So in the ancient galaxies that James Webb was designed and built to look at, astronomers weren't expecting to see red dots at all. They were expecting to see more bluish hues. Um, so this was kind of a bit of a surprise when they were looking at these deep field images in the first place. And they're also finding that these galaxies are much more massive than they expected. Um, they were not expecting that they would be as large as they are. In fact, they were estimating that they would be roughly the size of a one billion of our suns. But they're finding that they're about 50 times the size of that. Um, so not only are the galaxies shockingly big, um, but the stars in them are also a little bit too old than what we believed. We thought it would take more time for the stars to get as old as they are. So these new findings, I guess, they are in conflict to what we thought we knew. Um, and James Webb is doing its job. It's making us question things and it's making us have a better understanding and even more questions of uh, the universe we live in. So how does this change our perception then? It's telling us that maybe galaxies don't need as long as we thought to grow and to mature, and same for the stars in them. It's possible that the galaxies can get really big really fast, and it's possible that stars can also grow and mature much quicker than we believe. It's also possible that these stars and galaxies formed earlier in the universe than we thought, and we just didn't have the capabilities of seeing them until now. So uh, it's nice to be challenged. It's nice to be questioned, and it's keeping all of us really excited um, I like to tell people if you're interested in a domain that, um, you know, everything is a first or everything excites you, then the space industry is for you because just about everything that's happening is a first in some way or another. So I guess uh, in order for us to understand this and for the benefit of our audience, what, what exactly is a galaxy and what do we currently know about how it's formed? Well, this is just that. What we thought we knew, we maybe don't at all. So I like to remind people that we live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is a galaxy with billions upon billions of stars. So when we're looking at one of these deep field images, it's all of these little dots that we can see in a single picture is in fact a galaxy. These aren't stars, these are galaxies. So there's billions upon billions of billions of stars in each of these galaxies that we're looking at. And most people tell me that they feel really small when they look at these pictures, but I just like to remind them of how impressive it is that we as humans have been able to develop the technology to take a look at it and to take pictures and to be able to study it with science. So we're trying to study our own Milky Way in hopes of better understanding the galaxies out there. But like in, in the reverse, we can also study galaxies from the early universe and watch them form to also better inform us about our own Milky Way. And I want to ask you a little bit about how uh, we've been able to peer this far back uh, because we're talking space time now, which is a concept that just blows the mind. But uh, I want to ask you a little bit about how we're able to peer this far back uh, when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. We'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the 
conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And our guest today on On Target is Bethany Downer, Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. And Bethany, how is James Webb able to peer this far back, 13 billion years? And, uh, you know, it sounds like a lot, but you say just, you know, millions of years, 500 to 700 million years after the Big Bang. How are we able to look that far back? Well, it all comes down to light. So any of the light that we're looking at, whether it's the stars and galaxies that are billions of kilometers away or even the light that's overhead and illuminating the room around us, it takes time for it to reach our eyes. But light does move extremely fast, um, roughly a billion kilometers an hour. So if you are observing light in some way, it, it will take a quick time to get you. But space is just that big. So if we're looking at objects that are millions and billions of kilometers away, um, you're seeing that light that has traveled a long, long way in order to reach your eyes. So if we talk about something that's maybe a little bit closer, the sun, um, this star that's in the center of our solar system it takes the light to reach the Earth and to reach us roughly 150 million kilometers. So that light needs to travel about eight minutes in order to get to us. So when we're looking up at the sun, we're seeing the light as it was about eight minutes ago. But then you can take that even further when you consider the stars that are even further away and same for those galaxies. So the speed of light is incredibly important for scientists um, that are studying um, the galaxies that are extremely far away. Um, even our uh, the North Star that we see up in the sky, that's 320 light years away from us. And when we're looking at it, we're seeing that guiding star as it was over 300 years ago. Um, but another trick that James Webb uses is that it's an infrared observatory. Um, it's not looking at the universe as you or I would see it with our own eyes. That's more like the Hubble Space Telescope that observes in optical light. Uh, James Webb is observing the universe in the infrared, um, which is extra handy because it can pass through dense and dusty regions of space um, without being scattered and absorbed, um, which would uh, take place for Hubble images that can't look through dust. So many of the stars and galaxies that are too far or faint for us to see in visible light can actually be made visible to us in infrared. And this is what James Webb can do is peer through all the dust that would otherwise be in our way to see as far as we possibly can, which right now is roughly 13 billion years ago, uh, which is a bit hard for us to wrap our minds around when you think about it. Well, indeed. Um, so what do we know about the, the history of the universe uh, uh, after the Big Bang? We're still looking and still challenging ourselves, like the great example you raised of the little red dots that we're seeing in some deep field images. To our understanding, in the very beginning, everything was a little bit of a mess. Everything was shot out into the universe very, very quickly. Um, we like to say that it was a thick fog of hydrogen atoms that were permeating through space. Um, but over time, it was um, different conglomerates of gas and dust that brought themselves together to form galaxies. Um, but this took a lot of time. We're now questioning how much time that took for stars to grow, for stars to burn their fuel, for stars to come together to form galaxies. Um, it took lots and lots of time. Um, with this being said, um, what we consider a lot of time is not very much in terms of what the universe would consider lots of time. In order for a, a galaxy to form, it takes tens of millions to hundreds of millions of years in order to do so. 
So we're only looking at little snapshots. I like to tell people we're getting such a glimpse, a blink in a lifetime of a galaxy or a star when we're taking a look at something in the universe. So we're trying to look at things in different stages of their evolution so that we can try to put the puzzle pieces together to get a better understanding of how things grow and evolve. So is this, uh, <laughs> these are big questions, I know, but is this <laughs> linear or is it like a, a drop in a pool and it expands out from a center point? How, how do we have an understanding of that? We're not sure. We're not sure how far things can go. I mean, our understanding of James Webb is essentially pushing our boundaries of what we're capable of. Um, it's the best technology humans have come up with yet to be able to look as far as we possibly can. Um, astronomers call it the observable universe, which is as far as we can possibly look. Um, we've learned that the universe is expanding and the rate at which it's expanding is increasing. And this is um, largely in part um, thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope that we understand this. But we just don't know how much it's going to keep expanding. Will it continue to do so forever? Um, and we can only observe from the point that we are here. There's not necessarily a single point in space that's the center. We can only observe from where we are now. So it's a, a little bit hard to map out the universe in this way, but some astronomers try to put together a big structure that almost looks like a big spider's web um, for how gravity has brought galaxies and clusters of galaxies together over time. Uh, but it's only technology that we've had now the past couple of decades, thanks to Hubble and James Webb and other big observatories here on Earth. So we're only just getting started to having a better understanding of uh, how this all came to be. How do we determine where to focus uh, the James Webb's lens? <laughs> Excellent question. I'm asked all the time how we decide what it is that we want to look at. Um, so part of the challenge um, with James Webb's first year of observations is that astronomers didn't even know if it was going to work. We didn't know what its capabilities were. We didn't know what instruments would work or what its calibrations would be. So when astronomers were submitting proposals for observation time for James Webb's first year in space, um, they were pretty much shooting in the dark, I like to say, literally, in terms of what they expected or what they wanted to look at. So science teams come together and submit proposals. In fact, they just did so for James Webb's next year of observations for year two, and it was extremely competitive, broke a lot of records for all the submissions received. And they set forward different targets that they want to look at, and their proposals will explain why they want to look at different objects in space. It can be things that are close, like different planets in our own solar system, or it can be evolution of galaxies in the very beginning of the universe. So there's a huge array of things that they could look at. Um, the committee then comes together to decide which proposals are most exciting to them and which ones they want to move forward with. Um, but it also takes a, a lot of time for that selection process to take place. And there's also dedicated targets that um, Hubble and James Webb will look at every year they'll come back to, or sometimes they'll change their lenses quickly so they can move on to a target like a moving asteroid, for example. Um, so there is a little bit of flexibility in that schedule, but I'm very glad I'm not the one in charge of uh, planning out the telescope's observing schedule because it's uh, quite a science that they have that down to. Yeah, I was going to say, because I can just, in my mind's eye, picture these huge lineups of scientists who have spent their entire lives studying particular elements of the universe who have their hands up saying, oh, 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 can we focus here or, or there or, or there? <laughs> You're exactly right. So you can understand why it's such a competitive process. But something that's also been really nice to see from the science community is different science teams coming together. 
And they said, what if we teamed up and we decided to look at this thing together? We'll be a big science team. We can all look at the data together, which has been really nice to see international groups working together on some of the biggest press releases and uh, papers that have been published so far. And we're only just getting started. Yeah, and I imagine there must be some collective goals, too, between the European Space Agency and NASA. Absolutely. So it's a joint mission between Europe, the United States, and Canada, and there are joint goals, um, and that includes better understanding our solar system, on our Milky Way, the early um, galaxies in the universe, Um, but it's pretty broad. I mean, anything that the Infrared Observatory can tell us, we're interested in it. But luckily, we know that we have hopefully up to two decades worth of fuel on board, so we have lots of years of science ahead. So these early galaxies, these red dots, so to speak, were expected to be much smaller and not as well formed, but apparently they're quite massive. So what's at play here? And does this mysterious dark matter play a role? It's certainly possible. Um, The galaxies that were found were shockingly big, and the stars that were in them were shockingly old. Um, So for this reason, we're now laying everything out on the table as to what this could mean, um, where it came from, and what, you know, different explanations we have that could be for this. Um, Dark energy and dark matter are um, exactly as they sound. We don't very well understand them. in fact, dark energy is used for an unknown. Um, we like to say it's an unknown more than it is a known. Um, how much dark energy is out there, we're not even sure. Um, it's quite a mystery. It turns out that just under 70% of our universe is dark energy, and we still don't know what that is. Um, we believe that dark matter makes up around 27%, and the rest is everything on Earth, everything that we can observe from our instruments, our normal matter, Um, So that leaves about 5%. So we we have a very, very little understanding of what's out there and why um, things are taking place the way they are. Um, So we like to use words like dark energy and dark matter um, to explain things that we don't understand and to explore different uh, mechanisms um, that essentially lead to more questions for us. But that just means that the science community is kept very busy, which they're happy about. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and whatever dark energy or dark matter happen to, happens to be, uh, it's obviously very important. Absolutely. We uh, came up with it in the first place because, as I mentioned, we know that the universe is expanding and the rate at which it's expanding is increasing. Um, but the means by which that is happening, we are not sure. Um, It's possible that empty space can possess its own energy, which to us doesn't make sense yet. Um, But that's where this term came from in the first place. Um, We're we're still going back and questioning things, even Einstein's theories. We're now back and looking at in a whole new light, thanks to James Webb. Um, But this is exactly what the telescope was designed to do, was to surprise us. So we're delighted. And when it comes to Einstein, is he, uh, is, is that holding up the whole E equals MC squared um, equation? For now, yes. We don't have anything that suggests otherwise. We are holding to that, and most of our understanding does hold to that. I mean, one of the possibilities out there for dark energy would mean that his theory of gravity is not correct. Um, and that would not only affect the expansion of the universe, but it would also affect the way that normal matter in galaxies and clusters behave. So if we do find that it no longer holds up, just about everything we know would uh, would be questioned. Um, so for now, fortunately, it still holds. 
um, which is extremely impressive when you think uh, just how long ago that uh, came to be. And even some of the early Greek philosophers had some theories that are still holding up today. So um, it's nice to see what things can still hold the test of time, but it's also nice to be challenged and to look at them from a new angle and to have better understanding and uh, even more value and appreciation for them. Would these early galaxies have been visible at all without the use of infrared? To our knowledge, no. It's thanks to James Webb being cooled to, I like to complain about the weather that we've had the past week or so, but James Webb operates at roughly minus 230 degrees Celsius. And it's because it's that cold that it can observe in the infrared. So it can peer through dust and gas that would otherwise um, obstruct our views. Um, so that we can see as far back as humanly possible. Until we have another infrared observatory that's even better than James Webb, this is the best thing that we've got to date to be able to look at these galaxies. And are there other light spectrums that might reveal other things yet? To our knowledge, infrared is the best thing to be able to peer, uh, to peer rather, as far as we possibly can. Um, there are different um, scientific purposes for looking at different wavelengths. For example, the Hubble Space Telescope uses a little bit of observing time in the ultraviolet, but for the most part, it is an optical light because um, one of Hubble's goals was just to show us what the universe looked like. We had no idea how beautiful galaxies and nebulae and even other planets in our solar system was until we had Hubble to go take pictures for us, which uh, it launched back in 1990. So this is still all very recent that we have new views on the universe for us to play with. A jaw-droppingly beautiful and um, awe-inspiring. There's no other way to say it. Exactly right. It's keeping us very busy. <laughs> For sure. Um, when we come back, I want to ask you about um, what this might teach us about, I mean, we, we know what life is like here on this little blue marble, but is there other life out there anywhere? And will we ever hope to see it or be able to confirm it? Uh, I want to ask you about that when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And our guest today on On Target is Bethany Downer, Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. And uh, Bethany, uh, we're an egocentric species. <laughs> we're always wondering about ourselves and about, uh, you know, what else could be happening similar to us. Will what Hubble and now James Webb is revealing ever give us a sound answer as to the existence of life elsewhere? The answer, I guess, to that would be maybe. But to, to start off, I'll contextualize that by saying we are looking for signs of life as you and I know it to be. So we are looking for planets that are close enough to its host star that it's nice and warm, but not too far away that it's too cold. We're looking for planets with an atmosphere, ideally those that have oxygen, liquid water. These are the conditions that you and I expect to require for life to thrive but it's certainly possible that there is life out there that do not need these conditions in order to flourish so we have a bit of assumptions that are in place when it comes to looking for life elsewhere in the universe so i always like to challenge people in their way of thinking and just to be a little bit creative and imaginative in terms of thinking of the possibilities out there because they are truly endless but James Webb does come into play when it comes to searching for other habitable worlds or signs of life. 
um, by studying exoplanets or planets beyond our own solar system. Um, we have documented um, the data for at least 5,000 so far from a variety of observatories working together over the years. Uh, but now James Webb is going to be looking at the atmospheres of these planets. So it has a special mode called spectroscopy, and this is one of the most important tools that is out there for astronomers. So spectrographs are used by scientists to analyze the materials that make up uh, different things in the universe, but especially for planets. So when a star passes, uh, sorry, a planet passes in front of a star, the brightness will dip just a tiny little bit by James Webb's detectors. And it's during that time when the planet is passing right in front of the star that we can peer into its atmosphere. And by using spectroscopy, we can actually look at the unique spectrum, or what I like to call a fingerprint, for that planet. So this spectrum is analyzed by astronomers, and we can see what atoms and molecules are present in that atmosphere, which is incredibly impressive um, in terms of the technological capability that's taking place. But in order to be able to identify individual molecules in the atmosphere of planets, this can help us know what it's like on that particular planet. Is it rocky? Is it made of gas? Are there different molecules that could support life? Is there indications of life? Because some molecules are only formed from what we know because of life. Um, so in this way, we're getting a better understanding of how different exoplanets um, keep home to their atmospheres and what they're actually made out of. Um, in January, we put out a release that uh, James Webb is studying um, big balls of gas in the universe, um, and they're not even surrounded by um, a particular planet. They're just... Um, molecular clouds that are in interstellar space. And James Webb is so precise that it can look into these clouds and study the individual molecules uh, that are in these ices and to identify what um, exactly is in them. And it was able to confirm that it has molecules like um, ammonia, methane, methanol. So just think of the possibilities that we now have a means of getting individual fingerprints for all these uh, planets that are out there. So we might have signs of life. We're just now just getting started in our hunt for them. Well, like you indicated off the top, would, would we even be able to recognize life if we if we saw it, if it if it doesn't match what our understanding of life is? Exactly. We have a bit of assumptions, don't we? We're almost biased or clouded by what we understand life to be. So when we're looking at these different molecules, we're basing it off of our knowledge here of what would be helpful to look for. So right now we don't have anything else in terms of a basis or a point of reference other than life on Earth. So that's our starting point for now. Um, when we're looking at different planets in space and the atmospheres around them and the different types of molecules that they could host there. But when people ask me if uh, signs of extraterrestrial life is feasible, I do think it is. I think the universe is just that big that we should keep our minds wide open. Um, I do think it's feasible that we could find signs of life, but I think um, it will probably happen in our lifetime if it does, uh, closer to home. I think there are many moons and planets in our own solar system that would be very suitable homes for little organic life um, that we could find uh, in the future with different missions that are taking place in the coming years. So James Webb might be able to find something. We're just not sure yet. We're only getting started. Right. And uh, I mean, we're looking so far out there. Like you say, uh, this is well beyond our little solar system and our own galaxy, for that matter. There could be uh, signs much closer to home that we're looking past, if you will. Indeed, indeed. And, and like I said, we're only just getting started. I like to remind people that when the Hubble Space Telescope launched, it was the year 1990. It wasn't for multiple years after that until we even had proof that there was a planet beyond our own solar system. We thought it was just our own planet. Pluto was still 
considered one at the time. So a lot has changed since then. Um, so it's exciting to think of what will be talked about 20, 30 years from now of what James Webb has shown us. We're only just getting started in understanding what the telescope can do. Um, so it's exciting for scientists to really open their minds and their imaginations into the possibilities of uh, research opportunities. Uh, very exciting stuff. But we're only a year or so into this mission. How much data is actually being collected and how long will it take to analyze? Well, we're definitely taking our time when it comes to looking at the data, which is why most of the press releases that have taken place in the first six months of James Webb operating, um, as you might have seen, the first famous images came out in the middle of July. Um, since then, we've been putting, for the most part, um, photo releases or beautiful pictures that James Webb has taken. Um, these are what have been released first because most of the data in the scientific um, teams are working together to go through the data, to publish the data that has to go through the science reviews process. So it needs to be evaluated, needs to be published um, in a journal before it can be showcased for the world and shared. So it's only just getting started that these teams are now working really hard on the data. And just about everything that's being published from James Webb is a first in some way or another. So it's been extremely busy for our team working through all these papers, but it's a sincere pleasure to be able to see the excitement for all the scientists and all the great work that they're doing. Um, we just serve as the bridge between the scientists and the general public and sharing all the exciting work that they're doing. Uh, but I tell people that they can expect a lot more exciting science results in 2023 from James Webb now that those papers are starting to come out. Do uh, We were talking about, you know, where to, to point the lens next, but do different parts of the universe contain different elements or behave differently than other parts? To our knowledge, we think most things are pretty uniform. It's when we look down at things that are very specific or very small that things tend to be a little different. Um, in fact, our solar system is not even one that's considered common. Um, most solar systems that have a series of planets orbiting a star, actually most of them have two stars or a binary system, and that would be like us having two suns. Or if we were standing on the planet of Tatooine in Star Wars, that would be more realistic to see a double sunset than what you and I see now. So it's by studying other systems that we realize that maybe our own is a little bit more special than we believe. But it's by diving into the details where we can see little differences that are um, quite exciting. But generally, there are categories for things. For example, there's different types of galaxies, different types of planets. But by studying different ones, we hope to better understand and have a broad understanding of those that we can apply to other systems. But because there's so much out there for us to look at, we can't look at every single thing. So we uh, have to apply our knowledge as best we can by studying different case studies. That used to always bother me on Star Wars. I, I used to think, okay, so we orbit around the sun. They've got two suns. How the heck does that work? So how does it work? That's right. So that would be as if there were two suns in our solar system. So imagine that all the planets are orbiting around two stars that are at the center. So in fact, what's the view that's on Tatooine is actually more common out in the universe because there are many binary systems with two stars. The fact that we only have one star, one sun in our solar system is not quite as common as we believed. Um, it's more common there for there to be multiple stars, two or more, um, in these um, planetary systems. So it's exciting for us to realize that not only um, does science fiction become reality, but sometimes it's a little more realistic than uh, our own home. <laughs> so that would require huge orbits. It sure would. It sure would. Most of the uh, planets in those systems are quite cold um, because they're much further away from uh, their host stars. And I would imagine if two stars have planets orbiting both of them, they'll eventually merge. 
It's possible. In some of those cases, you're absolutely right. And it's uh, fun to be able to uh, observe those taking place. Um, James Webb and Hubble are really good at catching uh, dramatic events. I like to say that Hubble can catch um, stars being eaten by black holes or star mergers taking place um, because they can be quite violent. They leave a little stamp in the universe for Hubble or James Webb to take a picture of. Um, When we come back after the break, I want to ask you how James Webb broke the Internet, (laughs) for want of a better term. Um, It all has to do with uh, AI and questions about James Webb, and I understand it's caused a little bit of a fuss. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about that when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And our guest today is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. She's a Newfoundlander, of course. So uh, what's this about a James Webb-related question, breaking the Internet? <laughs> what's happening? Indeed. A couple weeks ago, uh, James Webb was back in the news, but not for science reasons. Fortunately, there's uh, big science and images that are coming out of James Webb all the time, so it gets lots of media coverage. But this one was a little bit special, um, and it had to do with Google. Um, Google is working on an artificial intelligent chatbot that they've called BARD. Um, And this is a tool where you can ask it a question, and it should come back with an answer that's reliable or at least correct. Um, And there are other artificial intelligence chatbots that are out there, but Google has been hyping this one up for some time. It's not released yet, but they've been teasing a little bit what it can do. And so in a live stream event uh, a few weeks ago, um, they also had a blog post out and tweeted um, a little demonstration of what it could do. Um, And to do so, they decided to propose a question to the chatbot as an example, which was, what new discoveries from the James Webb Space Telescope can I tell my nine-year-old about? And I think that's a fantastic question. I love that they were using science communication as an example um, or a parent that wanted to explain what's taking place in space um, in terms that could be understood by someone that's much younger. So the question, 10 out of 10. But unfortunately, uh, the answer that came back wasn't quite correct. It did provide some answers for scientific results that can be attributed to James Webb. However, it did say that James Webb was the first to provide us uh, with an image of an exoplanet. The very first pictures of an exoplanet came from James Webb. Uh, So this means a planet outside our own solar system. But this is not true. Um, In fact, it's off by over 20 years. The first image of an exoplanet, we got that back in 2004 uh, from a ground-based telescope that's actually called the Very Large Telescope, um, and it's based in Chile. So we've had this now for uh, since 2004. Um, And so when the chatbot... Uh, delivered an answer that's not quite correct. Um, The internet immediately um, started pointing out the fact that this was an error um, all over social media, and the news covered the fact that this isn't quite correct. So the chatbot that's meant to provide an accurate answer can't quite do that yet. So unfortunately, this embarrassing error for Google um, caused the search giant's parent company, uh, which is known as Alphabet, to lose roughly $100 billion in market value. Uh, when the markets opened the next morning. Um, So quite the costly error for that James Webb question it chose to ask, but clearly they're still working on it and hopefully they're getting it resolved. Uh, But James Webb was back in the the news for a reason that we didn't expect, and it was all thanks to uh, an artificial intelligence (laughs) chatbot. 
hundred billion dollars. Oh my goodness. If you told me about a hundred billion stars, I'd say that's impossible to imagine, (laughs) but dollars. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a costly mistake there, Bard. Um, I'm also seeing um, indications that uh, James Webb is picking up on a lot of minerals uh, in the universe. So, So what sort of minerals are out there and how do you pick up on them? So one of the best ways that we can look at minerals is through asteroids and by studying asteroids and comets, which I'm very glad that you brought up about because the Hubble Space Telescope put out a press release about an hour and a half ago um, showcasing um, new uh, live, or video, rather, a time-lapse video um, from a big collision that took place back in September that James Webb had a part on. So you might have heard of what's called DART, also known as NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test. And this was a test that NASA put off to see if we can redirect an asteroid that was coming for Earth. So the asteroid they decided to slam their spacecraft into was in no way in danger to us. This was more just a demonstration of technology to see if it could work. And Hubble and James Webb both pointed themselves at the asteroid to study what this took, the collision as it took place. Um, So just about an hour and a half ago, we put out a new video from Hubble showcasing the debris cloud. But James Webb also took place, uh, sorry, took observations of this as well. And one of the best ways we can look at minerals is through asteroids like this um, and being able to better study and understand the debris cloud that was created from it. So long story short, we learned we can, in fact, alter the orbit of an asteroid that could be coming for us. Um, It's a roughly 550-kilogram spacecraft that they collided head-on with this asteroid at 21,000 kilometers an hour. And it's thanks to Hubble and James Webb that we've been able to measure that the impact lasted roughly 900,000 kilograms of dust off this asteroid. So by looking at this dust, uh, we can better understand what it is that uh, the asteroid's made out of. We'd probably have to send a spacecraft or a robot to the asteroid to learn more about the minerals. But uh, to be able to observe the blast, we can just see how much is there. And uh, minerals are a great place to start for those that are interested in asteroid mining, which is an area in the space industry that's growing quite a lot. But luckily, Hubble and James Webb are the first ones to look at it to see if there are asteroids and minerals that are viable out there. So what can we expect from this dust then? I mean, presumably, if we sent a... a, 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 a I don't know what you would call it, the machine out there to to collide with this thing. It had to be relatively close by. So will we encounter that dust? Fortunately, it's pretty far away. The uh, the direction redirection test or DART spacecraft that we sent out there, it took quite a while for it to get out to the asteroid in the first place. And we have we are always tracking asteroids. And to our knowledge, there are none that are posing a threat to Earth right now. But this was just a test. But yes, the amount of dust that was created from this collision that was knocked off of the asteroid created a massive tail um, that Hubble and James Webb have been watching, actually, for the past couple months since the collision took place in September. Um, The European Space Agency is actually sending um, a new spacecraft to go follow up and look at the impact of the asteroid itself. It's called the HERA mission, hopefully launching in in the fall of 2024. So this is a multinational um, agency um, project that's looking to better understand um, what's coming out of this dust. But it's quite far away and in no way harms us. But essentially, this was a science experiment to see if it could work. And what have we learned about that dust? 
the biggest thing that we've learned so far is just how much there was. Uh, the fact that there was roughly a million kilograms of dust that came off this asteroid tells us that these collisions would be quite messy. So if it were to take place closer to the Earth, that could pose a problem. Um, but hopefully we would be able to detect an asteroid that were threatening um, to us when it's much further away so that we could send something out there to hopefully redirect its orbit and its trajectory. Uh, but we're still now taking a look. The uh, collision only happened in September. Um, the new video that was released today from Hubble shows just how much of a mess that dust left. Um, but uh, we're now digging into it and having follow-up studies like the mission that the European Space Agency is sending to follow up uh, to get a better understanding of what it is that could, uh, what minerals could exist there and if there's uh, more understanding that we can take for uh, future projects like this in the future. And what do we already know about uh, some of the metals and, and minerals that might be out there? For those that are interested in asteroid mining, they know that there's quite a lot of money to be made because the amount of um, gold and silver, for example, that are present in most asteroids is extensive. Um, the question, of course, is how to go get it and to bring it back to Earth. There's a lot of technological challenges involved with that. Um, but asteroid mining is something that's definitely of interest, especially for startups and commercial space companies these days. Um, Luxembourg is actually a country that's passing new laws in order to be able to build new spacecraft that can go explore um, um, the minerals that are existing in asteroids and hope to, to be able to bring those back. Um, it's quite exciting to be able to see that this is something that we couldn't even conceive of years ago, that now there's multiple companies that are actually trying to do so. Um, so it's quite exciting to see that uh, developments are being made. Uh, a lot of companies are working towards it, um, but there's uh, quite a lot of uh, hurdles to get there before that becomes something that's more of a reality for us to do uh, regularly. Well, the costs alone, they'd have to be uh, justified somehow. Exactly. And space in general is pretty expensive, so we have to prioritize what things that we want to do in the, in the space industry itself while also supporting uh, developments here on Earth. So we, uh, we're taking our time, but also trying to make uh, big strides. Asteroid mining, it sounds like something out of the Jetsons. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I can see them put on their little hard hats going out. <laughs> um, uh, so um, what, uh, what, what do we expect to find next? I mean, obviously, this data is coming in all the time. Uh, is there anything you're anticipating that's coming up next? I'm definitely looking forward to some of the images that are coming out in the next couple of months. There's some really beautiful ones, um, especially those that Hubble has taken, place, uh, taken already. So one of the most famous Hubble images was called the Pillars of Creation. It was taken in 1995 and then again in 2014. And James Webb over the past couple of months has published its own version of the Pillars of Creation. So we can combine the, the data, we can compare the data between Hubble and James Webb. So I'm personally really excited for James Webb to visit more of some of the famous Hubble images and to be able to offer scientists a whole new view of these objects, um, to peer through some of the dust and gas and showcase even more stars um, that we didn't even know were there. But there's also a lot of science results that are coming up that are quite exciting, um, especially in areas of exoplanet research, studying planets beyond our own solar system and what we're learning in those atmospheres. So uh, when people say what's coming, I say stay tuned. There's a lot coming up. Uh, and in July, we'll be celebrating one year since the very first images from uh, James Webb, which is uh, quite hard to believe, but uh, really exciting. So while things are moving really quick and there's lots of science and images to be excited about, we're also looking back and being grateful for how well things have gone so far.
Absolutely. Not even a year yet. It's hard to imagine the, uh, the amount of information that we've already received from this uh, It's so early on. And of course, it's got a long life ahead of it yet. Hubble's still going and it's over 30 years. That's exactly right. Um, um, in April, we're actually going to be celebrating Hubble's 33rd anniversary. So it's quite exciting that we have both of the telescopes operating together, which was always considered a dream and not something that was feasible, that both of them would be operating at the same time. So we're enjoying every single day that we have of both observatories being able to look into the cosmos for us. Bethany Downer, a, a pleasure as always. Always fascinating. I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk about municipalities. So stay tuned for that and all of the challenges they're facing right now, what they're asking from government. Stay tuned for that. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone.